Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep and more. It's fair to say that we're living through some pretty extraordinary times, whether it's the coronavirus pandemic or even just the usual hustle and bustle of parenting in the modern age. Sometimes it can all feel a bit overwhelming. Eloise Rickman is a parenting educator who responded to the pandemic by writing a book, Extraordinary Parenting, which was essentially, well, I should say, which is essentially a way to help many parents navigate their way through a very unique period of history. Homeschooling was a focus, but there's a lot in here for just dealing with modern life. Eloise joins us now. Hi, Eloise. How are you? Hi. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. In the introduction to this book, you talk about parenting being a radical act. Can you explain Mm. what you mean by that? Definitely. So I think that at the moment... You know, we are, it's such a cliche to say it, but it feels like there's a lot going on that parents have to think about and worry about, be it, like we say, you know, the crisis that we've all been experiencing with COVID, be it the climate change emergency that we're facing the world over. And it feels like sometimes as a parent, it can feel quite hopeless. You know, what do I do? Especially when you've got young children and maybe you can't be as politically active as you were pre-kids. Or maybe it feels like you're looking at the future that's in store for them and wondering, well, what do I do as a parent? And so this is why I talk about parenting actually being fundamentally a really radical act because it's something that we do day in, day out. But making small changes to the way that we parent and to the way that we interact with our children and the way that we raise them up to be you know a certain way you know if we're talking for example about um raising children to be anti-racist or raising children who will take care of a planet around us or simply just raising children in a way that fundamentally respects their humanity and seeks to not kind of you know control them by focusing on perhaps kind of you know shame-based parenting methods that actually looks to build more of a connected relationship with our children and again this is I've been really heartened to see this is becoming more and more popular at the moment and I think there is a big change that has been coming over the last couple of decades in how we do interact with our children and how we relate to them But I do feel that parenting can be incredibly radical. You know, how we treat our children lays the foundation for how that child grows and develops and how they perceive the world around them and their sense of self-worth. And there's been loads and loads of research done on how important, especially those early years of parenting really are and how children who have that strong connected attachment with their caregivers go on to be able to form, you know, stronger neural connections. And, you know, they then will be able to go out into the world feeling more confident and feeling more able to empathise and connect with other people in turn. So although I think it can feel, like I say, quite disempowering sometimes being a parent, suddenly you're confined perhaps to your home sphere and your world feels like it shrinks a little bit. I know mine did when I had my daughter. But what I really want to share with parents is this message that actually what you do really matters. And I think that so often mothering especially can be seen as perhaps not that valuable you know we're talking about getting mums back to work and of course you know 
it's important for women to have equal opportunities in the workplace. But I think sometimes remembering that actually the work we do at home really matters as well. And also part of that is when, as you mentioned, the world feels like it shrinks when you become a parent. The other thing can feel like you aren't making a difference. So even when you have all of those things in mind about positive parenting and uh, leading by example, your kid can still be, excuse my language, a little shit sometimes. And you think, hold on a minute, I'm doing all the right things. And why can't I see that change? I mean, do you ever find yeah. that in, your, in the fact that you can be repeating yourself over and over or doing things the right way, yeah. but you don't see the results? Yes. I mean, I think it's a long game. <laughs> it's definitely a long game. But I think it also requires a shift from thinking about our parenting in terms of the outcomes. And I think we live in such an outcome goal focused society, so many of us. You know, we want to do something on the Monday and see results by Wednesday. And I think that this kind of positive parenting requires a shift away from kind of goal oriented parenting to you know, how, how am I fostering and nurturing a relationship with my child that perhaps is going to, you know, develop and become really beautiful and strong, not just now, but over the next decade or, you know, when they're having their own children. And of course, children, you know, I'm definitely not saying that I am a perfect parent or that my daughter is a perfect child, far from it. But, you know, we all make mistakes. And I think part of this kind of radical way of being with children is focusing our efforts away from our children actually and away from our children's behavior altogether and focusing on how we respond to it so you know maybe our child is still you know despite us saying you know it's okay darling you can eat what you want and i'm not going to force you to eat anything maybe our child five days later is still ignoring any food that isn't beige and you know picking off the vegetables and very carefully dropping them over the side of their high chair but that's, you know, they're free to act however they want to act within, you know, some parameters that, and I'm definitely not advocating for a permissive style of parenting where we say anything goes. I think it is important for children to have boundaries in place to keep them healthy and happy and to keep other people healthy and happy as well. But I think that when we remove that focus from how can I shape my child to be exactly how I want them to be right now, and try and focus instead on, okay, this behavior is really triggering me. You know, this is really difficult. How do I take care of myself in that moment? Um, how do I find ways to move past the fact that what my child is doing in this moment makes me want to, you know, scream or punch a wall? And how do we try and regulate ourselves as parents? Because if we're focusing all of our attention on, okay, how do I train my child out of these behaviors? you know, that doesn't leave them with those skills. And all it does is make us feel like, you know, we're constantly in conflict with our children. Whereas when we take a step back and say, you know what, yes, this behavior is frustrating. But actually nine times out of 10, it's perfectly normal from a developmental standpoint. Actually, maybe I could enjoy parenting a little bit more if I relaxed and focused on myself. So I talk a lot in my book about the importance of self-care, for example, which I think has become a very overused and probably quite commercial term. But I think it's so important for parents, especially with young children, because like you say, children sometimes can be incredibly frustrating. And it's, you know, finding those ways to say, you know what, okay, 
this is really difficult for me, but you know, I'm going to make sure that I am getting my partner to come home on time so that I can go for a run or I'm booking in some drinks with one of my friends so that we can let off steam together. Or I'm just going to, you know, go into the other room for a moment, eat some of the secret chocolate that I keep in the fridge where the children can't see it and, you know, take a few breaths and come back and remember that actually they're still so small. Yeah. Um, look, here in Australia, at this, at the current time of recording, I have to put that caveat in because things change so quickly. Children are back at school, um, but it, it remains uncertain. Different parts of the country are seeing spikes in coronavirus, so there may be um, moments when they can't go to school. We still have very uh, ever-changing rules to what we can and can't do in terms of social distancing, etc. What's your advice to parents about how to manage this uncertainty with their kids? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think one that parents world over are wondering about and worrying about. And I think it will probably depend quite a lot on how old your child is as well. But I think, again, first and foremost, it's about how are you managing that uncertainty with yourself? Because our children, you know, they're like little sponges. They look at how we're responding and reacting to things and they really feed off of that. If you're feeling anxious because you're constantly reading the news and you're worried about it spreading again, maybe thinking about limiting your own news consumption as well. Listen to more podcasts like this instead. And, but I think when it comes to talking to children, you know, it's important to not overwhelm them, I think, especially when they're little. So give them as much as they need to know. So if your child is, for example, you know, going back to school, then talking to them in positive terms, you know, oh, you're going to get to go and see your teacher again, you're going to see your friends again, and tell them what's changed. So if they're going to have to queue up, for example, to go into school in a way that's more socially distant, have that conversation with them. Um, If they're going to be seeing more people in masks around let them know first and I think it's about you know having that confidence in the situation so that your child feels that confidence and feels secure and going off and being in a world that feels slightly altered and shifted but also really making space for the fact that your child may well still have their own anxieties around this and I think that would be completely normal and reasonable you know their whole world has shifted and changed and there's been so much discussion around microbes and viruses and germs and you know the socially distancing that we have all had to do I think makes it quite difficult for young children because suddenly they're told essentially people are dangerous to them you know we might not have phrased it like that but that's the impression they're getting so being aware that actually you know your child may have more frustrations during this time as they settle back into a semblance of more normal life they might find that they're having more tantrums coming out of daycare or coming out of school again, that they are yeah, maybe pushing back or not wanting to do homework as much. And I think being aware that this is all a really normal response. You know, when children are at school, they're often really good at holding it together because they have to, you know, and they want to show up well for their classmates and their teacher. And then when they get home, we call it kind of restraint collapse. So they've been holding on all day and then suddenly, oh, I'm sure we've all noticed that as parents, you know, our children do really well and they come home and they feel safe. 
and they let those guards down. So again, reminding ourselves, okay, this is probably going to happen. This is going to be normal if it happens. It's not a sign that we have scarred our children for life. It's not a sign that we're failing in our parenting. And so I think being extra kind of empathetic and aware that that might be happening whilst yeah, being really open to answering their questions. And I think as well, just being aware that especially when children are back at school, even if they haven't, you know, experienced trauma themselves, they may well have classmates who have experienced loved ones dying or maybe been in a situation of domestic violence as well. So they may have classmates who are kind of carrying extra trauma around in those moments too. And, you know, there's nothing that we can necessarily do about that as parents, but it's just something to be aware of too, that, you know, our child may have some, some questions as they come home you dedicate a whole chapter to family rhythms this is something not coronavirus related necessarily but i'm i'm curious whether you think it's possible to establish these kinds of rhythms when you're not homeschooling your kids so that a lot of changes are happening some parents are working less hours some are working more how can you establish a rhythm in your family if you're trying to juggle school or daycare with your work hours yeah I think actually it's almost more important for families who are juggling all of those things to have a rhythm and so I've run a course specifically dedicated to this and actually most of the people who take the course are in exactly the situation that you're describing you know juggling maybe a child in daycare a child in school two parents who work busy jobs you know possibly at different times and I think that it's important to stress that a rhythm is not a perfect routine which is never going to change and I talk about that in the book you know it's it's something that is fluid and living rather than something which is going to make you feel stressed because you're running five minutes behind bedtime and you know it's all going to go wrong um but I think that the most important thing to focus on if your family life feels let's say a bit chaotic, which I think a lot of people are probably feeling at the moment, is, you know, it's not about timetabling every bit of your day. It's about trying to find and weave more predictability into your daily life. So maybe, for example, your mornings are chaotic because you're trying to get everyone out of the house, but you always take two minutes to just light a candle when you're having breakfast, even if everyone is rushing around, you know, dad's eating at the counter, mum's trying to get her shoes on, the children are fighting, doesn't matter. You know, you're taking that moment, you're lighting that candle, and then, you know, you're taking it in turns to blow it out every morning. And it's something so simple, and it feels like it doesn't mean very much. But actually, when those things happen day in, day out, they become a predictable anchor. Okay, maybe you don't know who's taking you to school that morning, but you know that someone's going to light the candle as they're handing out, you know, Cheerios. Um, And ditto, you know, maybe bedtimes are another good thing to weave a little bit more rhythm and ritual into. So so many people already have rhythms. They just don't call it that. So so many of us will have a similar bedtime pattern. And it might not be that our children go to bed at exactly eight o'clock on the dot, but we'll still have a pattern of bath time, stories, PJs, bed. And that we know that that makes our children feel calm because, you know, that's why we do it. And we can see that when bedtime is more predictable, children are able to wind down more easily. So I think it's trying to find what I call anchors to kind of, you know, bring those moments of predictability in. And if your weeks are more unpredictable, then maybe it's about having a, you know, family pancakes every Saturday morning or 
everyone getting takeout on a Saturday night or always going for a walk together on a Sunday. And again, it's not saying that once you have these rhythms in place, you're stuck and you can't change. I think that would be a very strange and restrictive feeling life. And I'm definitely someone who is quite impulsive. And I think that if I wasn't able to suddenly go, right, let's go away for a weekend or, you know, let's go and have a picnic for dinner tonight, I think I'd be really miserable. So it's not about having very strict routines at all. But I do think that trying to find moments of predictability can be really soothing for children but also really soothing for us and I think when we're looking at okay what can a rhythm look like for our family it's sometimes about saying yes to more things but often it's also about saying no you know can we limit the number of play dates that our family is having to once a week so that we don't feel like taxis every evening and can we perhaps you know limit the number of after school club activities our children are having to do you know maybe if you've got very young children it's even about having a conversation with teachers around can we limit the amount of homework that's being sent home so that you're prioritizing having that kind of you know calm downtime as a family rather than continuing a frenetic pace of life um so yeah i think it's definitely possible for working parents it might take a little bit more thought to it, but I think this is what makes it even more valuable. Now you hit on something there that I um, am very interested in, and that is homework, because um, when it comes to education, if parents aren't homeschooling their children already, the biggest involvement they'll have in their kids' education is with homework. I hate homework. I really hate it. And I find it really challenging, uh, especially as a working parent, mm-hmm. to find that time with them to sit down and give them the attention they need. Plus, I have two children who are not in the same year. And it just does my head in. I mean, what are your suggestions in terms of how parents can handle homework and make it a positive experience and a worthwhile experience for the children. Yeah. I mean, can I suggest just banding together with all the other parents in your school and petitioning to scrap it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do. I I mean, I I think I share your reservations around homework. I think it can sometimes be quite a a form of stress. Um, And like you say, you know, you don't always have that much time with your kids in the evening and, uh, yeah, I think in my in a perfect world, I would not have homework, especially for younger children. But hey, we're not in a perfect world. I think in terms of making homework feel more joyful, it's again, you know, can you maybe put some little rituals around it? So although, you know, it can feel difficult to find that time, you know, if you're maybe sitting down once you've had dinner and maybe you're sitting down with like a nice dessert and some nice music playing and, you know, small things, which sounds really corny, but to just help your child to relax and to, you know, try and find moments of connection in that. I think that so often homework can turn into a battle because the children don't really want to do it. The parents, again, don't really have that confidence that they children really need to be doing it and I think sometimes it can really feel like an intrusion into family life so I think having some set times to do it where you know it's going to happen can be really useful because then it's not a surprise you're not jumping it on your kids while they're in the middle of doing something so maybe you've got an evening a week and then maybe some time at the weekend where that's kind of dedicated homework time and I think having a conversation with your kids as well you know if they're old enough to be doing homework they're old enough to be having a conversation about it so asking them you know look we both know that you have to do this 
how can we work together to try and make it as pleasant as possible for both of us? Because, you know, we need to be working on this together. And I think that homework does, like you say, give one really lovely opportunity, which is to see what your children are working on and to kind of get a sense of how they're learning as well. So it might be that you realise your child has, I don't know, history project on space for example, they need to do, you know, how, what's the history of space travel? And then maybe you use that to watch a film with them as well, which is perhaps not exactly linked to it, but, you know, it brings in kind of a, a cultural context to it as well. And you're able to kind of deepen that learning and understanding together. But I do really feel that, you know, actually, if we can, especially when children are young, having those honest conversations with teachers, if homework feels like it's really intruding into your life. And I think the problem is oftentimes a lot of teachers don't really believe that they should necessarily be giving this much homework either. I've spoken to so many teachers who are very anti-homework, especially before children get to kind of, you know, 15, 16, um, when they might be preparing for exams. So I think having, you know, if you're really feeling like it's overwhelming your family life, maybe having a conversation with a teacher and saying, look, you know, this is really having a negative impact on our family. Is there a way to, you know, prioritize this? What's most important for my child? Maybe, you know, it's learning some spellings because they're going to have a spelling test together. Maybe it's practicing a couple of maths questions. But I think sometimes we get so much volume of work that it can be, yeah, quite difficult to manage. So having, yeah, having conversations with your kids, what would make it easier for them? And really trying to carve out that time so that you don't feel stressed and rushed because you know that there's something else that you have to do. And trying to treat it as a time for connection with your children that gives you an insight into what they might be learning and what they might be enjoying as well. Yeah, and hopefully you can actually do the maths as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned at the top that um, self-care is something that you really prioritize and want your parents to prioritize and one of the parts of self-care I guess is self-compassion which I think Mm. is actually a really difficult concept for people to get their heads around what does self-compassion look like for a parent and how would you apply it to yourself for example Mm. So I think self-compassion is basically just a fancy way of saying, trying not to beat yourself up over every small mistake that you make. Because I think as parents, we can be so critical of ourselves. And especially I think now that we live in the age of social media, where, you know, you look at your phone and you see all of these charming families and they're all wearing clothes, which seem to not have any stains on. And the house is beautifully turned out and they're going you know bramble picking of their little baskets (laughs) and (laughs) someone's reading dickens out loud and it seems so idyllic and of course it doesn't you know that is not going to be their real life but when we're bombarded with enough of these images it can make us feel like absolute crap because we think well why are we not able to do this how is it that everyone else is holding it together apart from me when actually we know that family life is beautiful but it is chaotic and it's noisy and it's sometimes smelly and you know we can sometimes feel like we're the only one that doesn't have it together so I think self-compassion is yeah trying not to beat ourselves up when things don't go to plan and trying to 
yeah, be empathetic with ourselves in the same way that we would hope that if our child messed up or made a mistake, rather than saying to them, well, this, you always do this. You're such a terrible person. I can't believe you were even allowed to try this in the first place. You know, why is it that you always make these mistakes? We would hopefully say, oh, you know, yeah, that wasn't ideal, but you know, let's learn from it and let's find a way to fix it. And, you know, let's try and be gentle on ourselves so it doesn't happen again. But yeah, so many parents I work with, have that narrative of, well, this just means I'm not a good enough parent and maybe I should never have had children. And, you know, I can't believe that these precious children I love so much have to put up with such a failure as a parent. And I think we forget that everyone is having these same struggles. So self-compassion to me is going, you know what? Yes, maybe we have lost our temper and we've screamed at the children, or maybe we are just feeling really rubbish because we've had, you know, pizza for the third night in a row for dinner. And we imagine that everyone else is having kale smoothies and salad (laughs) bowls and things. But I think self-compassion for me is about not necessarily accepting that those things are always okay. You know, if I lose my temper with my daughter, I do wish I hadn't done so. And I'm able to look at it and go, yeah, that wasn't ideal. That wasn't how I would hope to parent. But it's about doing that without the side helping of guilt and go and looking further to say, oh, well, I wonder why, you know, if I usually get through a day without screaming at her, but today that was different. What might have been going on for me? You know, am I premenstrual? Am I feeling particularly triggered by something that's happened? And if so, you know, do I need to dig into that a little bit? You know, is it just that there are certain things? Like for me, it really bothers me if it's really hot. And I know that that is going to be a catalyst for me really not being my best parenting self. So it's even small things like, can I make sure I've got a big glass of iced water on hand tomorrow so that I don't fall into the same patterns? Something I found really valuable when I was having some therapy last year was speaking to my counsellor and she was saying to me, you know, I think I'd gone into some guilt spiral about, well, I should have done this and I should have done that. And she was saying, well, look, if you could have done that thing, you would have done. But the fact is that you couldn't because you didn't, you know, whatever it was, you didn't have the, the skills or the time or the energy or the emotional investment of the time to be able to do that. And I found that so helpful, you know, remembering that as a parent, if we could have done that patiently, or if we could have cooked a healthy meal, or if we could have remembered to put the washing on last night so the kids had clean uniform, we would have done. But actually, you know, cut ourselves a break. We juggle so much. So many parents are juggling, you know, busy paid work with families and with all the pressures that come from modern life. And I think it's that thing of remembering that actually, you know what, you're doing okay. You really are. What a beautiful place to end it. Eloise, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Eloise Rickman. She's a parenting educator and author of Extraordinary Parenting, The Essential Guide to Parenting and Educating at Home. And I'll have links in the notes of this episode if you'd like to find the book. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.